Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. The Chewing Company and Other Factor. The following program is sponsored Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth from Philip DeCourcy. How do we find peace and perspective in an age of increasing Islamic terror? In an age where the culture becomes more hostile to the Christians, even in the West? Don't become unsettled or insecure because of it. Give your fears, your future, your soul into the safekeeping of God. I don't know the what and I don't know the why, but I know the who. I trust in the genuineness of God. The church has always suffered persecution, but now we're experiencing it here at home in our schools, businesses, and churches. It's never felt so close or so threatening as it does today. Welcome to Know the Truth. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd, and our teacher, Philip DeCourcy, takes us today to 1 Peter chapter 4 to remind us that persecution should not take us by surprise. On the other hand, we aren't called to pick a fight or invite hostility, but to bring light, not heat, to a hurting world. Here's Philip. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 19. We started to look at how we find peace and perspective in an age of terror, a series we have called Maximum Security. And we have established two things so far, and we're going to drill down into this second thought. If you and I want to find peace and perspective in an age of terror, number one, we need to pray for unnatural peace. We saw that in Philippians 4, 6 to 7. And we started to look at the thought, we need to expect suffering and glory in it. We need to expect suffering and glory in it. And that's the point that Peter makes here in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. One of the Protestant martyrs under Bloody Mary was a man by the name of John Hooper. And John Hooper was facing a fiery trial, literally. He was going to be burned to death as someone who denied Christ's presence in the Mass, someone who wouldn't perjure himself as a gospel minister. And he was urged by a friend to renounce his faith. The friend couldn't bring himself to think of what this man was about to go through. And here's what John Hooper said in response to the friend who said, John, life is sweet. Death is bitter. He said, my friend, eternal life is more sweet and the second death more bitter. That's what Peter's talking about. Don't be surprised. Rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. This is verse 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, For, look at this, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
On their part, he's blasphemed. On our part, he's glorified. Embedded in this verse is a promised presence in the middle of a Christian's suffering. Cursed by men for the sake of the gospel, that Christian will be blessed by God. That's the promise. And what we're reading here is that at the low points of persecution, the Christian can look forward to experiencing a heightened sense of God's presence. In the middle of the bitterness, there will be a sweetness that only those in the furnace can experience. Why don't you talk to Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were put into the fire? And in Daniel 3, 24 to 25, we read, And there was a fourth man like unto the Son of God, walking in the midst of the fire. The presence of God in the lives of the martyrs and the persecuted. Stephen, as the bricks and the stones came raining down on him, in Acts seven fifty six, looked up and he saw the heavens open and he saw Jesus standing. We read in 2 Timothy 4, verse 17, of Paul's trial. This is his second imprisonment. He won't survive this one. And we read that no man stood with me, but the Lord stood with me. This is the promised presence of God in the life of those who are persecuted. You know, he never leaves us nor forsakes us. That's an absolute bedrock reality. But this verse seems to be saying that when you go through suffering for the gospel, that the spirit of glory will rest on you in a special way. Just as the Spirit of God rested on Jesus in Matthew three sixteen at his baptism, which was a fulfillment of Isaiah 11, verse 2. And some have alluded to the fact this may be a reference to the Shekinah glory. If you go back to your Old Testament and the nation of Israel, when God was among his people in a concentrated, full presence manifestation, there was a cloud, a glory cloud that hung over the tabernacle and the temple. It's called the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud. And when that was there, God was in the midst of his people. And some believe that's what's being spoken of here. It's a wonderful reality. And I think the comfort of the Holy Spirit gets maximized when the church is persecuted. I think history teaches us that. The Bible teaches us that. In fact, sometime delve into the life of Samuel Rutherford, a great Scottish Presbyterian of the 17th century from my wife's native Scotland. He stirred up the animosity of the crown when he denied the right of kings. He wrote a paper called Lax Racks. In fact, some of the founding fathers of America and the religious thinkers of early America got their ideas for a democratic republic from the Rax Lax, from the writings of Samuel Rutherford. And he was held up in a damp, dank prison in Aberdeen. And he wrote from there many, many letters. You can buy that little book from Banner of Truth, The Letters of Samuel Rutherford. And he called his prison the palace in Aberdeen. In fact, let me quote him. Christ and his cross are sweet company and a blessed couple. My prison is my palace. My sorrow is with child of joy. My losses are rich losses. My pain, easy pain. In fact, at another time, he said, Jesus came into my prison cell last night, and every stone flashed like a ruby. He's not talking about a literal manifestation of Jesus. He's talking about a heightened sense of Jesus' presence within and around 
And every stone in that dank, damp Scottish prison up in the north, if you've been there, it's freezing. And this is the days before central heating, by the way. And there he languishes in that prison, his palace, because Jesus' presence has turned every stone into a ruby. Isn't that what Peter's talking about? If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, you live in a world that blasphemes him, but you're part of a church that glorifies him. So don't be surprised when the world that hated him hates you. And when it happens, you make sure you count it a privilege to suffer for him. And while you're suffering for him, keep your eye on the eternal joy that awaits you and know that in the present, he'll be with you and never leave you nor forsake you. Okay, here's another thing. And these last two thoughts will move through a little bit more briskly. Peter encourages reevaluation. Verses 15 through 18. Now, look what he says here at the beginning of verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. So on the one hand, he says, you're going to suffer, and I want you to embrace it. Then he gives this kind of correction or qualification. He said there is suffering that is justified and something to glory in. But he said there is suffering that's unjustified, and you brought it upon yourself. The one kind of suffering is a suffering of which you ought not to be ashamed. The other kind of suffering is a suffering of which you ought to be embarrassed, to say the least. So he says here, that none of you suffer as a murderer. Well, that goes without saying. A thief, that goes without saying. An evildoer, that goes without saying. In fact, you would expect to suffer for those things, not just as a Christian, but as a citizen, because you break the law in those areas and you're done for. But it gives us an interesting fourth perspective. Don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. He goes on to say, look, if anybody suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. And then he gives us an interesting insight. For time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And God judges his people, chastens them, purifies them, doesn't let them sin without penalty. If they're his, according to Hebrews 4, if he loves us, he'll chasten us. And the point being made here, if the church that's saved is saved with difficulty, how much more sad the experience of those who are not in Christ. And if God begins purging and judging sin in his church, what will it be like for the world who's unrepentant? In fact, you see that, don't you? In the study in Revelation, I did when I looked at the seven letters. Where do we begin? We begin with Jesus walking among the churches, judging the churches. And he says to those at Ephesus, you need to start loving me a bit more. And he says to those in other cities, you need to do this and do that. You need to repent, stop the immorality. You need to be hot, not lukewarm. And he judges the church. And then you go from the judgment of the church in this present age to the judgment of the world in the great tribulation and the end of the age. That's God's kind of chronology. And Peter's alluding to it here. So he says, hey, if you're going to suffer as a Christian, embrace it. Remember, God's working in the church now, purifying it. And if we get saved with difficulty, pity those who meet Jesus in the judgment without any covering, without any atonement. But you can suffer in a way that you ought not to suffer. And I would assume that Peter's really challenging the believers here to make sure that they don't invite the hostility of the culture unnecessarily by going about with a wagging finger and calling out this sin and that sin in the culture because that doesn't produce anything worthwhile. Foolishly bidding and badgering people 
who don't conform the Christian standards tends to lead to greater hostility. And we might like to think, well, hey, you know what? I'm suffering for Jesus. And Peter says, maybe, and if it's the case, great. Suffer it, embrace it, and God will bless you for it. But maybe you're suffering because you have been unwise, you have interfered, you have been judgmental, you have been a bit of a nuisance in a culture that really doesn't want to listen. I think that's what's being driven at here. He's reminding them not to be an agitator. You aware of that word, an agitator? You know, when I was in the police, we always watched out for the agitators. A crowd would gather in front of our police line, and invariably one or two agitators would come to the front, and they would get into the policeman's face. We see it with the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff that's going on in our own country, where the policeman's standing there stoically, and somebody's in their face agitating. See, what they want to do is they want to bait the policeman into a negative reaction. And then they'll go, see, these guys are bad, even though they stood and called the policeman all the names of the day and acted in an antisocial manner. That's the agitator. And Peter is saying, hey, we don't want any Christian agitators. Now, he's not saying not to be tough. He's not saying not to stand for the gospel and righteousness. But he's saying, hey, you need to be prudent, and you need to be proportionate, and you need to be measured, and be very careful that you don't say, see, the world hates us, when really they hate you because you've been a bit of a numbskull and a nuisance in the way you've acted. And we've got to be careful. And when you get into that culture war, are you being persecuted or thought evil of because of the gospel or because of political activism or agitation on your part towards a culture that really doesn't want to listen? And that's why if you read the New Testament, you won't read much about boycotting the unsaved and their shops if they sell this or they do that. Because remember, are you surprised? What are you surprised about? They're surprised when we act like Christians. We shouldn't be surprised when they act like lost people. And so Peter's saying, hey, kill the jets. He's not saying don't be a witness for Christ in the culture. In fact, he says, be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. That's the hope of the gospel. But he says, be careful when you're baited and the world agitates you. Be careful you don't become an agitated, angry Christian. Because that can lead to them persecuting you and an unnecessary martyr, because they're agitated, not because they're offended by the gospel. They're offended by you. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. Here's what Paul says to the church there, that you may aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. You've got a similar thought in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and verses 1 to 3. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplication, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Interesting. For the most part, as a general rule, we should be looked upon as people who just go about their business, who are good citizens, who submit to the government in most circumstances, who are honest in our dealings, hard workers in our business. Our families are worth a look at because our children obey and our husbands love their wives. That's the way we're generally to live. Once in a while, we might find ourselves on the front line of some issue. But generally speaking, it mustn't be our way of life where we're constantly agitating, angry, speaking out, getting all upset. Because that tends to lead to unnecessary hostility with the culture. 
And it's usually underwritten by a wrong perspective where we like, I can't believe this is happening. When Peter says, hold on a minute, didn't I tell you, don't be surprised when they act like this? There's nothing in the Bible about boycotting the unsaved. There's nothing in the Bible about fixing people who don't want to be fixed. That's not evangelism. It's meddling. You know the story, I think I've told you before, of the Irishman who goes to the local priest and he says, Father, he says, I want you to come home to my home and speak to my wife. She needs a good talking to because she's a holy terror about the place. Always blowing her lid. And the priest rather sheepish about getting involved, rightly so, but he realizes, hey, maybe it's my parish duty. And so he agrees, and they walk a mile back to the house, and they're coming up to the front step of the home, and and the guy says, he says, Father, would you stand here? And the priest says, why? He says, well, you wait here, and I'll go in and get her started. (laughs) And you could apply that in a whole lot of different directions. But I think that's what Peter said, hey, be careful. Here you are complaining about the culture, and it's hostile, and it resents the church. Can I ask you a question? Did you start it? And did you start it in a way that wasn't justified? Were you sticking your finger in the face of a society, wagging it, condemning it, stirring it up? And then you're surprised that they reacted in a hostile manner? Don't suffer that way. That's foolishness. Verse 19, Therefore, Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. This section, this pericope in this passage concludes with a restatement on suffering with a word of exhortation. He encourages his readers to place their lives in God's keeping. And this is the antidote to a sense of insecurity. We're back to our maximum security. How do we find peace and perspective in an age of increasing Islamic terror in an age where the culture becomes more hostile to the Christians, even in the West? I mean, how do we get peace? How do we get perspective? Pray for an unnatural peace, and two, expect suffering and rejoice in it. And don't become unsettled by it or insecure because of it. Give your life, your fears, your future, your soul into the safekeeping of God, and be still and know that He is God. That's where we wrap up. The word commit is an interesting word. It's a banking term. It means to deposit for safekeeping. And just as people would put their money into the safekeeping of others, you and I are to put our trust in God. We're to trust our past dealings, present circumstances, and future prospects to Him. Jesus did it, didn't He? In fact, if you go to 1 Peter 2.23, it says that Jesus committed Himself to Him who does justly. Paul did it in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. I have committed unto him that which he is able to keep unto that day. And so the Christians all across Asia were to do it, and we're to do it too. In the midst of the unknown, we are to focus on what we know about God. We're to focus on who he is and what he does. He's the creator. He's the one who gives life and governs life. And in the middle of it, he's faithful. In fact, when Jesus sees my anxiety, he says, let's talk about a faithful creator. Go and look at the birds of the air. They don't worry. They don't get all upset. They don't feel insecure because they know their father will take care of them. There's something innate and inbred in a, a little creature like a bird. How much more you, more valuable to him, more precious to him. And Peter says, hey, you need to keep focused on who God is. God's ways may be unfallible, 
but his character is not. He's faithful. You and I want to realize that the key to suffering and surviving it is not to suffer a loss of confidence in the character of God. In the middle of suffering, you'll lose stuff. You may lose your health. You may lose your wealth. You may lose your friends. You may lose your life. But in the middle of what you're losing, don't lose your confidence in the character of God. Commit yourself to a faithful creator who's marked by goodness, greatness, and genuineness. In fact, I'll close with this insight from David Ireland, who had a neurological disease that crippled him, crushed him. And when he was frequently asked, do you believe that God will heal you? He would frequently reply, do I really need healed? And he wrote a book called Letters to an Unborn Child. Letters to a child he didn't expect to see because of his disease. And in the book, he says this, I'm firmly convinced that God is extremely good and that he does love and understand all the world and all the people in it. Does he want to heal me? I can't even answer that. My faith is in the genuineness of God, not whether he will do this or demonstrate his goodness in that. That's not the nature of my relationship to God. I've always appreciated that illustration, that insight. He said, you know, I don't know what God's up to. Can he heal? Yes. Does he heal? Sometimes. Will he heal me? No idea. But this I'm sure of. I don't know the what and I don't know the why, but I know the who. I trust in the genuineness of God. And that's where Peter signs off on this section on suffering. Don't be surprised when it comes. Rejoice in it because your temporary sorrow will lead to exceeding joy. And in the middle of being reproached for Jesus, God's going to bless you with an extra measure of his presence. And I make sure that if you're suffering, you're suffering for the right things as a disciple and not a meddler. And in and through it all, don't try and answer the what and don't try and answer the why. Just keep focused on the who. Deposit your trust in the faithful creator who allows you to suffer within his will and who will supply all that you need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for this word. Help us to tuck it in our hearts that we may not sin against you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We can exchange our fear for faith when we press into God. You're listening to Philip DeCourcy, and this is Know the Truth. Today's message is from our series titled Maximum Security. To hear this sermon again or to get related Bible study resources, go to ktt.org. Now, did you know that each time you tune in to Know the Truth, you're benefiting from the support of men and women who value this ministry and want to see God's truth proclaimed with boldness, clarity, and conviction? Perhaps today is the day you'll join this family of faithful supporters by becoming a Truth Ambassador. Truth Ambassadors sign up to give regular monthly donations, helping us to create, produce, and distribute these Bible teaching programs. And we'd love to add you to the family. Automating your donation is easy when you call 888-644-8811 or sign up to be a Truth Ambassador at ktt.org. But whether you become a Truth Ambassador or give a one-time gift, we'll say thanks by sending you Philip DeCourcy's brand new book titled Take Cover. It's being released in a matter of days and many are eagerly anticipating it. It's a step-by-step guide for finding peace in God's protection. 
Be one of the first to receive a copy when you support the ministry of Know the Truth. Ask for the book, Take Cover, when you give online at ktt.org or call 888-644-8811. You can also mail your donation to Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. And if you're new to Know the Truth, reach out to us today and we'll send you the free Take Cover bookmark. It lists some of the key principles that Philip shares in his new book. Ask for the free Take Cover bookmark when you call 888-644-8811. I'm Wayne Shepherd signing off for today, but be sure to come back tomorrow when Philip takes God's Word and puts our problems into perspective. That's Friday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. This is Michael Medved for townhall.com. The demographic division that counts most in presidential elections has nothing to do with race, gender, or income. It involves state boundaries that determine votes in the Electoral College. By that standard, warning signs from the midterm elections should alarm Republicans looking ahead to 2020. Three states, crucial to Trump's victory in 2016, shifted decisively toward Democrats two years later, and Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin combined for 46 electoral votes. Those three states each went GOP by paper-thin margins two years ago, but this time, Democratic Senate candidates won easily and Republican gubernatorial candidates also crashed and burned. Even if Trump holds all the other states he carried last time, he'd fall short without Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Instead of a focus on rallying loyal followers, Trump needs to win independent suburban votes in these key swing states whose recent desertions could doom GOP prospects. I'm Michael Medved. Hey, folks, I'm David Mitchell, founder.